one of the ways we structure our services here at Temple Hills Baptist Church is in a kind of escalating fashion. We mean to be building up momentum, not in a way that people at a concert might build up momentum or at a sporting event, just to make you more and more excited. We mean to build up momentum as we build deeper roots into God's word. And so we, we began our services with a call to worship from God's word. And then we try to sing songs that match the theme of what's going to be preached in God's word. We try to pick a scripture reading that is from a different testament from the passage that's going to be preached that matches, again, the theme of what's going to be preached in God's word. So that by the time we come to the sermon, we want God's people to be so already embedded into the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ already soaking in us, that this is not something new that we're about to do, but just a reaffirmation of all the truths we've already covered. And so we come to the sermon, the longest portion of our service. It's not simply because one man wants to talk for a long time. It's that we just want to keep expounding on the explicit gospel that's already been explained in so many ways in the service so far. And so what we generally do at Temple Hills Baptist Church is open up a book of the Bible and begin reading that book and explaining that book and applying that book until we get to the end of that book. It's a practice that's termed expositional preaching, kind of exposing what the Bible says for itself. And so there might be times in the life of our church where we talk about this or that topic, but the regular diet of preaching here is to work consecutively through books of the Bible. We think that's most safe for God's people, and it helps instruct you how to read the Bible for yourselves and how to apply the Bible to all of life situations, regardless of if you're reading Job or Philippians. There's truth to be found, and we trust that you would know that for yourself. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to the book of Philippians. It's an old book. It's written 2,000 years ago, but still incredibly relevant. Why? Because it's written to Christians living in a fallen world with all kind of fallen desires, with all kind of wrestlings within and opposition without, and Christians needing to find real joy and hope in the Lord. I wonder if you've, as you've read through the book of Philippians, seen how many times the apostle Paul used the word joy. It's something that we all want and we all can have, but it's only found in Jesus. And Paul means to reaffirm that truth for God's people. And if you're not one of God's people, to introduce you to that truth for yourself. Well, we're in the book of Philippians, and this morning we'll look at the book of Philippians chapter 1. We'll work through the latter half of verse 18 through verse 26. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chair, you can find it on page 980. Philippians chapter 1, I'll read from the latter half of uh, verse 18 through verse 26. The Apostle Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Well, that is far better. But to remain in the, in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If you're taking notes this morning, here's what I think is the main idea of this passage. And so the main idea of the sermon. Pretty simply, the main aim of a Christian is to magnify Christ. The main idea of this passage is the main point of the Christian life. Is that you're Christian, the main aim of a Christian is to magnify Christ. As we explore that main idea, we'll hang our thoughts around two points this morning. Number one, we'll look at the Christian's confidence. We'll see that in verses 18b through verse 20. And number two, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the Christian's priorities. We'll see that in verses 21 through 26. So two points, the Christian's confidence and the Christian's priorities. Point number one, the Christian's confidence. Well, confidence can often be something that's misapplied, can it? And we can be overconfident about the wrong things. When I was in middle school, right up the street here, Benjamin started practicing my MJ fadeaway every day after school. I was quite confident that I need not study hard because obviously my future lay in the NBA. Little did I know that five foot nine ain't a great NBA frame. <laughs> a few years later, when I went off to high school, basketball took a backseat to girls, and I was quite confident that this or that girl would be the one for me forever. Thank the Lord that wasn't the case. You see, our, our, our confidence can often be misplaced. You can be really, really confident about the wrong things. The solution is, is not to trash or throw away confidence. The solution is not to embrace a continual doubt, but rather to place confidence in the right things. Here we see the Apostle Paul express great confidence about some things. First, notice how Paul is confident that he will live a joyful life. And look again at the latter half of verse 18. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. That sounds rather presumptuous, doesn't it? I mean, how can you know for certain that you'll have joy in the future? You don't even know what the future holds. You see, because for many of us, we tie joy, we tie happiness into what's happening. If things are going well, yes, I can be joyful. But if things are going poorly, then I'm going to respond poor, poorly. What, what other option is there? But Paul teaches us that happiness can be certain because we need not tie happiness to circumstances. We need to tie happiness to a person, to Jesus Christ. And Paul previously said in the earlier part of verse 18, that even from a prison cell, even as others on the outside were putting him down while exalting themselves in their gospel ministry, that he was not down. 
but rather rejoicing because Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. And here in the latter half of verse 18, Paul doubles down. Not only am I joyful in the present, I will be joyful in the future. Yes, and I will rejoice. There's a resolved resolution to rejoice continually. Why? Look at verse 20. Paul says, because I know something. Uh, notice again how crucial knowledge is in the Christian life. Certainty about some things. Earlier up in verse 12, Paul told the Philippians, I, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Here Paul says, I will rejoice because I know something. You see, friends, agnosticism is not a commendable virtue in the Bible. If you're here this morning as a self-professed agnostic, as a self-professed skeptic, we're, we're very glad that you're here this morning. You're welcome to come back every single Sunday and to worship with us. But just know that the Bible does not intend to keep you where you are. The scriptures mean to drive you from uncertainty to certainty, from unbelief to belief. So that you might have confidence in Christ and might know for yourself some things about Jesus and the Bible. What does Paul know here that grounds his confidence and joy? What he tells us at the end of verse 19. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. The this here that Paul is referring to is his current trial, his current predicament which we learned last week is his imprisonment in a Roman jail. You might figure, oh, well, of course then that Paul can have joy. He's got good reason. He's got some secret inside information that at some point soon he'll be released from prison. But he can see the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel, the rainbow after the storm. He knows that better and brighter days are ahead, and so he can happily wait, Xing off the days on the calendar until the day of his release. You know, we can endure a trial with a smile for a while, as long as we know the end is coming. As we look deeper at this passage, we see that Paul's deliverance is not a day of release from jail. He had no certainty about that. That wasn't what fueled his joy. Rather, note what is meant by deliverance here. For one, the word is better translated salvation. It's the Greek word soterion that's so often used in the New Testament for salvation. But you don't need to know Greek to know that Paul has something deeper in mind behind deliverance than merely rescue from prison. I mean, just keep on reading in verse 20. That's just a good practice of Bible reading anyway. If you are uncertain about what something means, just keep on reading until the next verse. Paul says in verse 20 that it is my eager expectation and hope. In other words, my confidence, my certain confidence that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or, or death. And this verse would make no sense if in verse 19, deliverance meant release from prison. And Paul would have no need to talk about Christ being honored even by death. Uh, 
I mean, death would only come if Paul remained in prison and then stood trial and was sentenced to death. And then, as Paul would later be in life, led from prison to the executioner's block where his head would be chopped off. Paul doesn't know for certain if he'll be released or if he'll be executed. Both were real possibilities. But what Paul does know with absolute certainty is that whatever the outcome, he will not be ashamed, but that Jesus Christ would be honored, exalted, magnified, glorified, whether by Paul keeping on living or even in Paul's dying. For Paul, the deliverance, the salvation he looked toward was a final salvation, a final vindication. You know, the Bible talks about salvation in three tenses, past, present and future. We have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. Paul here is not just talking about that past initial act of salvation, that comes when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and are declared righteous in God's sight. Neither is Paul alluding to the continual act of being saved. That happens as God continues to work in us to, to root out sin and increasingly conform us to the image of Christ. Now, Paul is referring to that day when we will be saved fully, finally, eternally, and stand before God's throne vindicated. And that final salvation only comes if we endure to the end. If we're not ashamed of Jesus, if we don't turn away from Jesus, if we don't abandon him when times get hard and persecution comes. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, the time is coming when they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says elsewhere in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. I wonder how those words confront you this morning. Are you ashamed of Jesus at your workplace? Are you ashamed of Jesus around certain friends and family members? The kids, are you ashamed of Jesus at school? then he will be ashamed of you at judgment day. Paul stands confident that he won't be ashamed at that day of final judgment when he stands before God. Because at the day of temporal judgment, when he stands before people, before the Roman officials at the tribunal, he won't be ashamed but emboldened to still testify of Jesus as the only son of God who died for our sins and rose from the grave and is Lord over all. You see, Paul knew that his prison sentence could mean a trial where he would stand before Roman officials and they would ask him, who's really Lord, Caesar or Jesus? You see, during the New Testament times, it was quite scandalous. It was a political statement to say Jesus is Lord. 
all Roman citizens were expected to bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. And Paul says, nah, that ain't for me. I'm going to be emboldened to still testify about Jesus that he is Lord over all. Paul was sure that Jesus was going to be magnified with his every breath. I mean, every day in prison, he made it his duty to proclaim Christ to the guards. And even if at the real prospect of death, if Paul's life was taken away, Jesus would still be magnified, would be glorified. How? Well, people would see that this Jesus was so big and so worthy that Paul was willing to even suffer and die for his sake. And they'd have to ask, after they'd put Paul away and, and put him in, in his burial site, along with the loads of other Christians who, like Paul, were willing to, to die too, they would have to ask, why would they be so willing to do that? Just who is this Jesus? Why is he so important that droves of people who used to be Jews and not love Jesus are now willing to die for Jesus? Maybe he really is who he says he is. Maybe he really is the eternal son of God, the one and only savior for sinners, and we need to trust in him as well. Paul was confident that he'd persevere through any pain and through any punishment that came his way. And that he'd keep testifying of Jesus Christ, come what may. And, and how could Paul be so confident? Well, because of the help of others. You see, Paul was confident, but he was not self-confident. And so notice his posture here of humility, of reliance. He says, I, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance and that Christ will be honored in my body. But notice the means by which this will happen. Uh, look at verse 19 again. Paul says it will happen through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Uh, what's meant by the spirit of Jesus Christ? Uh, this is a weird way to say things. Uh, well, it's just another way to talk about the Holy Spirit who proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And this wording here, the, the spirit of Jesus Christ, is not a different person from the Holy Spirit. It's the same person. I mean, if you want to see that later on, just look at Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, where the Holy Spirit and the spirit of Jesus are used in back-to-back -back verses, not to refer to different spirits, but to the same divine person, the third person of the Trinity, the spirit of God. And anyway, Paul says that, through the help of the Spirit, he'll stand bold. He'll not be ashamed. He'll honor Jesus. That idea there of, of the help of the Spirit is, is better understood as the supply or the provision of the Spirit. But there's a problem there, isn't it? Don't Christians already have the Spirit? I mean, certainly great apostle Paul has the Spirit. But that's absolutely true. The Bible tells us that once we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that he takes up residence in our hearts. He dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. But we also read in the Bible that there are times when, when the Spirit's presence is more abundant in our lives, where we experience his, his closeness and his comfort and his strengthening in an increasing way. And that's why places like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, talk about being filled 
with the Spirit of God. And often, when that abundant presence of the Spirit is most needed, is in the midst of suffering. Where you need the Spirit of Christ to produce in you endurance and perseverance and faith to keep proclaiming Jesus even in the midst of the most severe suffering. And how is it connected to the prayers that Paul mentions here? Well, the Spirit's abundant supply is granted through the prayers of the saints. I remember several years ago, my wife and I went to a, a Voice of the Martyrs conference. Voice of the Martyrs is a, is a ministry that focuses on the suffering of Christians for the gospel around the world. And there was a man who was speaking, an African man who was speaking about a, a time in his life where he was uh, persecuted in his country for converting to Christianity and for uh, preaching the gospel about Jesus. He told us of how he was repeatedly, night after night, hung upside down in his prison cell as the guards beat him blow after blow after blow after blow. That he was bloodied and bruised, all trying to get him to recant his faith, to deny Jesus Christ. But he talked about that the most incredible thing that happened was not the incredible pain that he endured from those beatings. The most incredible thing that happened in that prison cell, he told us, was the incredible closeness of Christ's spirit that he felt. He talked about how he could sense how near and powerful the spirit of God was in him, strengthening him to sustain the suffering and to not denounce Jesus, even as they kept saying, denounce Jesus or die. And he would not do it. He said, I felt the Spirit's presence. And he said, I knew people were praying. And then he said something very instructive and corrective. He said, many Americans, when you hear about someone suffering or being persecuted, your first and only instinct is to pray for their release. You need to pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen them to endure the suffering for Christ's sake. Why? Well, for the very purpose that Paul puts here, that Christ would be honored, that Christ would be exalted, that Christ would be magnified in my beaten and bloodied and broken down body, whether by life or by death. Saints, I hope you see the power of intercessory prayer here. A prayer is not some rote routine that Christians just do. Prayer engages heaven in helping God's people. I mean, Paul shows us the power of prayer here by encouraging the Philippians to pray for him. It's only through your prayers that I'll be granted the spirit to be able to endure this suffering. I mean, were prayer meaningless? If prayer were powerless, Paul would demand something else from them. I mean, he'd ask the the Philippians to to use your political ties, use your social networking, use your great wealth. That's what I need, something tangible, something obviously effective and proven. But none of those things is what Paul needs because Paul's main desire is not just physical and temporal release from prison, but for spiritual strength to endure and persevere in the faith. And for that, he needs the most powerful tool possible to man. Prayer. Prayer of the saints. I wonder, have you thought about prayer like that? 
I mean, if we were off, uh, honest, prayer often seems pointless. I mean, you talk to a God you can't see. And you often don't see immediate results for the things you pray for. But perhaps it's because we're looking at the wrong things. I mean, you pray for a sister suffering through a severe sickness. You pray for her healing and for strength and for complete deliverance. And yet five months later, and she's still suffering. And yet she's still trusting in Jesus while she's suffering. Was your prayer unanswered because her body is wasting away? Or was it answered powerfully because her inner soul is being renewed day by day? You see, friends, our, our, our prayers are part of what God uses to keep our brothers and sisters persevering in the faith. So if you only pray for the release or the removal of some things, you might miss how God is answering prayers through the release of the bondage of sin, through the removal of the fear of what might happen, and miss that God is moving powerfully in our brothers and sisters by keeping them Christians even while everything else is falling apart. Our prayers are part of what God uses to keep us in the faith. He has chosen prayer as the means to move in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters, that we all might magnify Christ regardless of the circumstances. As Christians, we can know that we will not be ashamed, but continually honor Jesus because God will hold us fast. And God will do so through prayers of his people and the provision of his spirit. That's the Christian's confidence. And that confidence is rooted in the Christian's priorities, the Christian's values, which brings us to our second and last point, the Christian's priorities. In the latter half of this passage, verses 21 through 26, it's, it's almost as if Paul has to explain and defend how he can have a certain joy regardless of, of what may come. How he can care so much about honoring Christ and cares seemingly so little about what happens to him. And so he articulates here his driving passion. Uh, look at verse 21. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My life is his life. I am not my own. I live for him. It's as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, which we started our service off by, by quoting, I have been crucified with Christ, all right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul was completely captivated at what Christ had done for him. And he's loved me. He died for somebody like me with all my sins. And he rose again and granted me faith to believe in him and have everlasting life. What will I not do in service to and out of gratitude for him? And friends, that's to be our posture as well. Because Jesus didn't just die for Paul. Jesus died to save sinners like us too. With all our sins of commission and omission. 
with, with all the things that we've said and done against God's will and all the things that we have not said and have not done that God absolutely demands. Man, I know many of us are, are trying to forget all the foolishness that we used to do in our former lives. But there are times when we need to deeply reflect or we need to deeply remember the long track record of our righteousness and how God came and died and rose again to save us from that, to save wretches like us. And we respond to him by repentance and faith and by a life lived to honor him. Never to earn his favor. I mean, his grace to us is undeserved. But to show how much we deeply love him, to show how appreciative we are that he would go so far as to leave heaven and come to earth for us so that we might be able to leave earth and go to heaven with him. We honor him by how drastically different our lives are because of him, that now we live for him. I mean, all of us can remember a time in our, in our lives when that was not our aim, or to live for Jesus. You see, because whether you acknowledge it or not, all of us are driven by some kind of passion. All of us are driven by some kind of desire that animates and enlivens everything we do. And so if you're reading verse 21, you're like, this just kind of sounds uber spiritual. To live is Christ. I mean, nobody does that. Maybe it's because we've minimized the fact that we're all living for something or someone. And what's that for you? Uh, what's on the other side of your to live is? Maybe for you it's to live is to make money. To live is to have a good time. To live is to be him. To, to gain clout and status and respect from your peers. To live is to satisfy my sexual desires, to see how many men or women I can add to my body count and sleep with. To live is to, to find a spouse or to satisfy my spouse or to have kids or to make my kids happy. To live is to please people. We're all living for something or someone. But let me ask you a real question this morning. How's that going for you? Does it satisfy you? When you lay down at night, is, is there peace? Is there joy? Is there assurance? Or is there emptiness? Is there unending guilt? Is there fear? You see, the only thing that will fulfill us is to live for Christ. Because that's the purpose that you and I were made for. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so when you keep on trying to stuff other things in that gap and to live for those things, the, the thing that we were made for malfunctions. And so we go off into a continual misery, continuing to go on trying to find happiness, trying to find joy, trying to find peace, and never able to find it because you keep on living for the wrong things. 
you might not have that kind of self-analysis, but as someone who used to live for himself and for sin and for the world, I know what you're feeling because it don't satisfy you. And you know how I know it don't satisfy you? Because you got to keep on going back for another fix, for another drink, for another puff, for another one-night rendezvous. That flesh don't never get filled up when you live for the flesh. Oh, but when you live for Christ, there is a satisfaction that fills you. There is a completeness. You can, everybody else can have all that they want. Just give me Jesus. All I have is Christ. And that's enough for me. To live is Christ. It's to honor him. It's to live for his glory. It's to promote his gospel. It's to make him known. And that covers a broad range of activities. I mean, that, that, that covers all of life. It don't mean just sitting in church all the time. right? It's, it's going out and living fully for him, living a sin-free life. Yes, you, you won't do that perfectly, but you and I can conquer sin by God's spirit in us. right? That, that honors the Lord. That's living for Christ. It means instructing your children or your Godchildren, the people the Lord puts in your life, your co-workers, about Jesus. Right? It means discipling other members, right? Being ambassadors for Jesus everywhere you are. That's what it means to live for Christ. I mean, notice in, in verse 22, Paul says that this living means fruitful labor. Says there's effort involved. It requires some work. I mean, when you were living for the world, you worked hard. You gave great creativity and attention and time and effort to live for what you wanted. Why would your zeal cool when it comes to Christ? Now, if we used to go hard for the world, we need to go extra hard for the Lord. And this labor is fruitful and never futile. Not because of some results it produces, but because of the one who it's for. It's for Jesus. It's for his sake. It makes him look big and reveals a deep faith in Christ. A faith that will be rewarded with the sight of Christ. Which is why Paul can say to die is gain. Now the, the culture we live in doesn't quite know what to do with death, does it? And many treat death with either fear or flippancy. Some fear dying. And so all they, they do all they can do to, to try to avoid it or to, to, to postpone it. Or don't talk about no death. No sickness. You got to call it something else other than what it really is. They get surgeries to cut and tuck and lift and pull and push and do all they kind of can do to try to slow down the obvious and unending decaying of that body. Others have a rather flippant attitude towards death. <laughs> we all going to die one day, so we better live it up now, baby. We just partied and pass away and then perish into oblivion. But the Bible presents a different picture of death. Death is serious. It indeed is something that will happen to all of us, but that commonality does not diminish how devastating it is. Because death isn't just a reality that just happens. Death is a reality that's the result of a ruined relationship with God. Death is a consequence of something. Death, the Bible tells us, is because we've all sinned against a good and holy God, and the penalty of sin is death. And yet, 
the Bible instructs Christians that as serious as death is, we need not fear death. Because Jesus has come and taken our sins as our substitute and paid the penalty of our sins, death by dying in our place for us. But he rose again, securing for us eternal life after death for all those who turn from their sins and trust in him. A life with him forever instead of a life away from him forever in hell. For the Christian, Jesus has transformed death from eternal penalty to passageway into paradise. And so for Paul and all those who trust in Jesus like Paul, death is gain. Because Paul knows what death is. It's not a final resting place, but as he says in verse 23 here, it's a departure from this world to be with Christ, which is far better. To live is Christ in this world, but to leave this world is to actually be in Christ's presence immediately. Saints, just see here a really short but really important doctrine of what happens after we die. We don't go extinct. We don't go to some temporary holding cell. There is no purgatory. The Bible has no concept of that at all. There is no soul sleep, some unconscious state that our spirits remain in. No, our bodies lay in the ground awaiting a final resurrection, but immediately our souls are present with Christ in a way that we're fully aware of, in a way that we fully experience and fully enjoy, in a way that is far better than the closest relationship with Christ here on earth. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Is that your perspective? You see, some of us might see death as gain, but only because of what we lose. Right? Death would mean the loss of the removal of suffering, of worry, of bills and burdens. But Paul sees death as gain, not simply because of what he'd be freed from, but because of who he'd be face to face with. His Lord Jesus Christ. I, I want to see him. And Paul has the same desire that David had in Psalm 27 that Steph read for us earlier. One thing I desire, that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that to, to inquire, to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You see, heaven ain't just so you can go see your friends and family members. That's sweet if they know Jesus. Heaven ain't just to get away from this wicked and fallen world. That's sweet. Heaven ain't just so you can be freed from the sin that indwells us. Oh, that's really sweet. Heaven is to be with your Lord Jesus, which is far better than anything else. Paul's singular passion is Christ, to proclaim him and to be present with him. Uh, what are you going to do with somebody like this? <laughs> I mean, how do you constrain somebody like this? I mean, you, you threaten them. You, you better stop talking about Jesus. We're we going to lock you up or lay you off. Uh, Paul responds, I can't stop talking about Jesus. Just like you can't stop talking about your kids and sports and vacations and weekends. I got to talk about Jesus because Jesus is my life. Well, you threaten them even further. Well, we're well, we going to kill you if you don't stop talking about Jesus. 
Paul said, even better, take me home. <laughs> like, this man is a madman. <laughs> or this man or this woman has something or rather someone that I desperately need. And friends, if you're here this morning and you don't have this kind of resolve, this kind of assurance of purpose in life, this kind of assurance of the outcome of your life, please don't brush that off as a minor thing. Again, you were made to honor and glorify Jesus Christ with all that you are. And so your failure and refusal to do that, you treating Jesus as just some other dude out here on St. Barnabas Road, is going to earn from God his eternal wrath. The father, the father loves the son. The father honors the son. When you get to the judgment day, the father's not going to ask, what have you done? The father's going to ask, what have you done with my son, Jesus? Have you honored him and exalted him as the only Lord of all the earth? Or have you lived to lift up yourself? There's a day of judgment coming that will be poured out after you die. For non-Christians, for people not living for and trusting in Jesus in this life, when you depart this life, you won't be with Christ. It won't be far better, but far worse. You will end up suffering eternally in an unending torment in hell for rejecting Christ. But friends, God does not want you to end up that way. That's not God's desire for you. I know that with certainty because God sent his very son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for the sake of sinners so that we might not face his wrath, but might be with him forever. I know that's not God's desire for you because God brought you to church this morning to hear a sermon about treasuring Christ above everything else in all of life. And God is calling you now to trust Jesus with everything. Would you do that right now? And we don't do an altar call at our church, but right now in, the, in, in your seats, would you respond to Jesus as the greatest treasure in your life? Would you stop fighting? Would you stop delighting in your wickedness and your sins that you know do not satisfy you? Would you turn from your sins right now and put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and for everlasting satisfaction and joy? If you feel like you've done that or want to know more about what that looks like, come talk to me at the door after service. Talk to anyone else around you after service. We love to help you to have Christ as your own, not only in this life, but in the life to come. See here, Paul's passion, Paul's priorities, his, his singular desire, his singular passion is Jesus, living for him and better departing and being with him. But before we close, see also how Paul shows that he cares not just about what's best for himself, not just about what he most wants, but what's best for other Christians. He prioritizes others' needs above his own desires. 
I mean, notice in verses 22 and 23, Paul gives the Philippians a peek into some inner wrestlings in his heart. He said that to live is Christ and to die is gain, but he says in verse 22, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. And in verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. Well, why would that even be a contest? I mean, that's not even a struggle. Give yourself to your highest desire. If it's far better to depart and be with Christ, then go do what's far better. But Paul here amazingly states that if the decision were his, he'd delay the incredible delights of departing and being with Christ in order to help the Philippians. He says in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. For you. That's more necessary than me dying and going to be with the Lord. Convinced of this, he continues, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you might have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. There was progress, growth still needed for the Philippian church. Growth in the knowledge of God and the attendant joy that it brings. And Paul knew that God wanted his children to spiritually grow and mature. And so Paul is more assured that God will keep him alive and aligns his desires with God's will, seeking to be a vessel for the spiritual growth of others. What would make Paul most happy was to be with Christ. But friends, the Christian life is not about what would make us happy, what we most want. The Christian life is about what we could do for others' best interests, for the good of others. I mean, Paul went instruct in chapter 2, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, the Philippians to look not only out for your own interest, but the interest of others. And here he models that. He prioritizes others growing to have the same kind of mature love and joy in Jesus that Paul says he has. So that together we might say, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Saints, that should be the aim of every Christian, to magnify Christ. But for that to happen, it has to be the aim of every Christian to help every other Christian magnify Christ. To lovingly labor together, to pursue one another, to put up with one another, to bear each other's burdens, to instruct one another for each other's progress and joy in the faith. So that in us, they might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. He is worthy of glory and praise. Let us show that by our lives together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the joy that Jesus fills us with. We pray, Lord, that we would delight in Christ above everything else. Lord, make Jesus our life and make the prospect of being present with Jesus sweeter than anything in this life. Uh, prepare us to meet our King and, and Lord. Uh, cause our hearts to devalue the things of this world, to exalt Christ as our one and only passionate name. We pray this in his name, for his sake.
Amen.